Do any of you know what Sasquatch sightings are? Yeah. It's just popped into my mind while we were dancing, but a Sasquatch sighting is where someone thinks they see Sasquatch, like the big, hairy, gorilla-type animal that supposedly lives in the wilderness and shows up on deserted country roads and leaves enormous bare footprints and things, right? And I have a true story to tell you today, not about a Sasquatch sighting, but about a Yeshua sighting. You know how he was executed as a common criminal on a cross by the Roman state, and he had predicted before he was executed that he was going to be executed and that he was going to make a comeback, that God was going to raise him from the dead. And sure enough, three days later, there indeed were witnesses that they had seen Yeshua, eyewitness sightings that he had been raised from the dead, and that he was around there somewhere. And so, following his resurrection, for a period of about 40 days, he kept on appearing seemingly out of nowhere, sometimes to people that were behind locked doors. If you could imagine at nighttime being maybe afraid that someone was going to break into your house or maybe you were afraid that you were going to be arrested and so you hid out somewhere where nobody knew where you were and you, you put, the, you took, you put the, the deadlock on the door. What do you call that? The deadbolt. Yes, the deadbolt on the door and you were like, no one's going to find us here. No one knows that we're here and all the doors are locked and suddenly a guy shows up in the room. He just appears there. Uh, you are going to freak out, I'm sure. But that's what happened several times with Yeshua. And there were actually, there were some problems with the plan, hey? Before Yeshua was crucified, he told his guys several times, okay, guys, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to be raised from the dead, and we're going to rendezvous in Galilee. And as you know, Galilee is the province to the north of Judea, where Jerusalem is. So they would have had to make a hike for a couple days north, back to their home province, to rendezvous with the Master. Here's the problem. After he was raised from the dead, the uh, Yeshua's inner circle of disciples didn't believe the eyewitnesses who saw him. So they just stayed in Jerusalem and they were mourning the master's death. And it was kind of a, that's kind of a problem. Like the, the plan is kind of flopping. They were supposed to go up to Galilee and they just weren't going. So finally he had to appear to them in Jerusalem. And at the end of the Gospel of Mark, it says he actually rebuked them for their hard hearts. Like they were just stubborn guys. They refused to believe the evidence, eh? But finally Yeshua did get them up to the Galil the province of Galilee, and that's where this story takes place. So this story happened almost 2,000 years ago after Yeshua of Nazareth's crucifixion and his subsequent historical resurrection from the dead. This story happened on the shores of a big lake. In Hebrew, we call it the Canaret. Can you say Canaret? Later, Romans also named it Tiberius, after one of the Caesars. So in Hebrew, it's also called Tiberia. So that was the, that was the lake where this, uh, this story happened. This was the lake, you may remember, where some of Yeshua's disciples grew up. Like Simon Peter and Andrew, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee's boys, these guys grew up in a couple little towns on the lakeside. Uh, Nathaniel from Cana. Cana was a little town that was built on the edge of the lake also. And there was quite a fishing industry going on there. In fact, some of Yeshua's guys were fishermen by trade. They had a family business where they owned a boat or two. And they had some, uh, they had some employees and they would go out and fish and then market their fish. So this is, this is the setting for uh, this story. And I've actually, I have been to the shores of the, this lake, Canaret, 
and I hiked almost halfway around it. I climbed a really big mountain just to the west of it called Mount Arbel, and I slept right on top of this mountain for the night where I could see the entire lake lying beneath me. You could see the shores. You could see up at the north end of the lake where Capernaum or Capernaum was, where their base was. And uh, this, this was where this story took place. So Yeshua's uh, disciples, a couple of them had gone back home. Who went back home? Uh, you had... Simon Peter, who is Shimon Kepha. You had uh, Zebedee's boys, who were Yaakov, or James, and then Yochanan. Did Yochanan write anything? In English, they call him John, of course. Did Yochanan write anything? Yeah, that's right. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the Besorah of Yochanan. And actually, this is where we get this story from. John the son of Zebedee, is the one who told this story. He was there. Who else was there? A couple other guys. Um, Nathaniel, or Nathanael from Cana, was there. And then two other Talmudim or disciples that uh, he doesn't name. So, the sun was setting. It was evening time. And Shimon said to the other Talmudim disciples, Guys, I'm going fishing. And they said, Us too. So they all went down, and they got in the boat, and they pushed the boat out. And just like they had done for years before his buddies, before they even met Yeshua of Nazareth, they uh, put the nets down in the lake and they uh, went fishing for the whole night long. They probably had a little lantern hanging on the boat. And guess what? That night they had zero luck. Not that they believed in luck, I'm sure. But um, they just didn't catch anything all night long. So finally the sun had made its revolution, shall we say, or you could say the earth made its revolution, however you prefer to look at it. But the sun had gone from setting in the west till it was starting to get bright in the, in the east, and the sun was going to come up. And they hadn't caught anything, so they said, okay, it's, it's about time we went home and went to bed. We just pulled an all-nighter fishing, and we didn't catch a thing. So they were starting to head back to the shore, when lo and behold, there's a man standing on the seashore, shouting to them, and they were about a hundred yards away at this point from the shore. And he said, My sons. In Hebrew he said, Benai, do you have anything to eat? That's kind of a funny question for a guy standing on the shore early in the morning to ask. Hey, but that's what he asked. And they said, No. And he said, Your nets? Throw them on the other side of the boat, the right side of the boat. And you'll catch something. So they looked at each other. Why not? And they picked, pulled their nets in from the one side and they dropped them on the right side of the boat. And would you know it? Those nets started snagging fish right away. You could see the nets trembling a little bit in water and moving. And they looked at each other and they said, There's fish! This thing, they're catch- we're catching a school of fish! So they began to pull the nets in. And would you know it? The nets were so laden with fish big fat fish they couldn't even pull them all into the boat like so you're not just talking a couple that you could count on the fingers of one hand or both hands so they uh, they they just decided they were going to head for shore by this time Yochanan who was like Yeshua's special disciple he was the one that Yeshua really loved he, he put two and two together here. I think he probably had a deja vu moment because when they first met Yeshua from the little town of Nazareth, there was this one time when they hadn't caught anything. 
And, uh, and he told, he gave them some special instructions. So they went out and they followed his special instructions. And they pulled in so many fish, it almost sank the boat. They had to call their buddies in the other boat to come over and help them. And here is this stranger giving them some special instructions. And guess what happens? The same thing. So Yochanan, he probably has this big days of moment. He figures this out. And he leans over to Shimon and he says, Shimon, it's the master. And do you know what Shimon did? Well, Shimon was in his undies. Because he had been working all night long and he took off his, he took off his, outside, his outside clothes because he was just kind of, he was stripped down for work, right? So he was in his undies. So he's like, oh. so he quickly put on his outside clothes and he threw himself in the water. Koosh! The guys probably looked over and there goes Shimon. And he is just lunging through the water as fast as he can to get to the shore because he knows it's Yeshua. And uh, thankfully, not all the disciples abandoned ship. The other disciples stayed in the boat and they, uh, they, took, they pulled the net to shore. So they got to shore and there's Shimon already just dripping wet and probably shivering because it's early in the morning. And who is he talking with but Yeshua? And Yeshua had a little uh, fire going of charcoal, which is very smart if you're a cook. Because when you have a charcoal fire, you don't get all of that smoke. You're not smoking the fish, then you just get nice, pure cooking heat. So he had a little fire of charcoal, a bed of charcoal, and he was cooking some fish on there and some bread. And Yochanan never tells us where he got the, where he got the food items from, but Yeshua is uh, pretty famous for pulling food out of thin air, so who's to say? Anyway, but he had this food cooking for them. And uh, Yeshua looks at them and he says, Come have breakfast. Can you imagine the looks on their faces? Like, and at this point, they all knew it was Yeshua. For some reason, they didn't recognize him as the master by the way his face looked or by his physical appearance. Like, Yochanan figured out because he like, had this big deja vu movement, you could say, hey? And then, um, at that point, they all knew it was the master, but none of them dared to say, who are you? Because they all knew it was Yeshua. And so they went and uh, they were going to have breakfast with Yeshua, and he said, uh, go, and, go, go and pull in some of the fish from the nets that you caught. And so Shimon, of course, ran lickety-split down to the beach, and he, uh, he grabbed the net, and he hauled it up on the shore single-handed. Do you know how many fish were in the net? There wasn't just 12 fish, or 24 fish, or 36, or multiples of, 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 of 12, even up to 100. There was even more than 150. There were 153 fish in that net. How, how many, how many pounds do you think your average fish would be that were pulled out of the uh, out of the Canaret Lake? Let's say even if you just like, I, I'm guessing these are pretty decent sized fish because Yeshua isn't cheap. He doesn't give people little itty bitty fish when he gives gifts, right? So let, let's say even just see on average they were two or three pounds each. If you're talking two pounds, you're talking over 300 pounds of fish meat right there in the raw form talking three pounds a piece, you're talking 450 pounds. Whatever the case may be, uh, Shimon, he grabbed the net and he hauled it up on the beach and they brought some fish over and they had a good fish barbecue for breakfast with the master. And that's the main story that one I, I want to tell you. Uh, Yochanan relates how after that, Yeshua and Shimon went for a little walk along the beach and Yeshua asked him three times in a row, Shimon, do you love me? And Shimon said, Master, you, you know that I love you. And by the third time Yeshua asked him, he was a little heartbroken, hey, because he had kind of proved just a couple days before that that he maybe wasn't so loyal as he thought he was or that he really wanted to be. And every time after he said, Master, you know that I love you, Yeshua would say, you know, take care of my sheep, 
feed my lambs, he'd say, say stuff like that, referring to his disciples. And uh, then Yeshua told Shimon how he was going to tie. He kind of told it in an en- enigmatic way, you could say, that there was going to be a day when he was going to cru- get crucified, and that was how he was going to glorify God. That was the death by which he was going to glorify God. And Shimon had actually, while they were walking lock- along the beach, and Yeshua was telling him how he was going to die decades from then, he looked back, and there was Yochanan tagging along. And uh, he said, Master, what about, what about this guy? And Yeshua basically said, well, why does that matter to you? You follow me, Shimon. So that's our story for today about the third Yeshua sighting in the Gospel of John after he had been raised from the dead, after he had come back to life. And I have a couple of questions for you to think about with me uh, with regards to this story. So my first question is real simple. Is there anything you really like about this story? Like as I'm telling you this story and as you're just, you're just imagining it in your minds. I don't know about you, but when I'm telling a story, I'm totally there. Like I totally get sucked into the story. I'm imagining being like being right there in the boat and watching Shimon throw himself in, into the water and looking at that little bed of charcoal and smelling the fish. Is there anything that you really like about that story? Maybe, maybe you like just how real it is. Like that Shimon is his usual self. He's very... Uh, passionate, you could say spontaneous, you know, just throwing on his clothes and jumping in the lake. Never mind, he may be freezing cold for the rest of the morning. He's just got to see the master. Or um, what, are, what are some other things that maybe you would uh, like about this story? Maybe you like just that they had breakfast. I mean, that's pretty neat to have breakfast with Yeshua after he came back from the dead. You'd think he would be a very spiritually minded person at that point. Like, Never mind asking these guys if they had any food for breakfast. That's the kind of thing a good Jewish mama does. But a rabbi? He's like, you guys have any food? And there he is, he's cooking up breakfast for them. I love that. I mean, who would have thought of that by Yeshua, hey? Uh, those, are, those are some things that maybe you like about this story. Is there anything about this story that you don't like or that maybe bothers you a little bit? Maybe it bothers you just that here's Yeshua's disciples knowing full well that he's been raised from the dead. They've received all of the master's teachings over the last several years. I mean, they kind of have a mission from him because at that point he had already appeared to them behind locked doors and he had breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he had said, just like the Father sent me, I'm sending you. In other words, the mission I came on from my Father is the mission I'm now entrusting to you. And what do these guys go and do? They kind of default to life by before Yeshua. Like they're like just let's let's go fishing. I'm just going to go back to the old, the old, the old family business. Maybe that bothers you a bit that they just seemed to be so disoriented or they just didn't get it. Who knows? And when you when you look at the different people in the story and the way that they must have felt and the experiences that they had, are there any of these people that you can really relate to? Where you can be like, yeah, I've totally felt like that. Yeah, I, I've been there in, in my life. Um, maybe, you can, maybe you can relate to Yeshua's disciples just feeling like, yeah, I, I've seen it all and I know it all up here, but somehow it just hasn't hit here yet. I just, I still feel kind of lost. I mean, yeah, there's this big picture and Yeshua's alive from the dead and I, I, I've studied all of his teachings and he's given, he said he gave us this mission to do the same stuff that he did, but... I don't know, I just can't get him to get out of bed in the morning. Or I just, I don't know what to do today. I, I don't know what to do with my life. Maybe, maybe you can relate to feeling like Yeshua's disciples, where it's like you've seen glorious things, and you know the stuff. But what's the next step? 
And quite frankly, I just don't feel very passionate about it. Maybe, maybe you can relate to Yeshua's disciples just kind of defaulting and going back to the way you did life uh, by before Yeshua. Oh, maybe you can uh, maybe you can relate to the feeling of Yeshua's disciples after they did strike out in the boat that whole night. These are professional fishermen, and they caught absolutely nothing. I mean, if you're going to pull an all-nighter, it's nice if you can make a couple bucks off it, right? These guys just, like, totally futile. Throw the nets in the water, throw the nets in the water, nothing at all. Maybe you, maybe you can relate to the feelings of frustration they had, must have had by morning. I mean, where, why wasn't God helping them? Yeshua's alive from the dead, he's around. Maybe Yeshua would even send a couple fish their way or something. I don't know, my guess is they probably felt a little frustrated. Maybe they were a little depressed. Like, not only did Yeshua get killed and then raised from the dead, and we're just like, we're totally bewildered, and we just totally feel out of our element, but now we didn't even catch a single fish. Man! Oh, maybe, maybe, you, can, maybe you can relate to that. Um, maybe you can relate to the success they had when they tried a different approach. Did you notice that? I don't know why... But for some reason, apparently, this specific little band of fishermen only threw their nets on the right side of the boat. Why? I don't know. But when they threw their nets on the left side, they suddenly had different results. I don't know. Have any of you experienced that in your life? Maybe in uh, communicating with someone. Maybe in business practices. Uh, Maybe in how you've taken care of your health. Maybe in your sleeping schedule. I don't know. There are lots and lots and lots of examples. But have you ever had something where something just wasn't working for you and then you tried a totally fresh approach, you uh, experimented with with a new way and you found, I got fantastic results from that. Maybe you can relate to that little element in this story. That, uh, that thread. Um, maybe you can relate to one of two groups of people in the story. On the one side you have Shimon. He is, um, he is your classic uh, passionate person. Sometimes to the point where maybe he's overwhelmed with the spur of the moment motivation. Um, if you are that kind of person, you'll say that you're spontaneous. If you're not that kind of person, you'll say that person is impulsive. Alright, so I would call myself, I'm kind of like that, so I would probably call myself spontaneous, whereas maybe other people would call me impulsive. Alright, but that's Simone. Maybe you can relate to Simone doing things like that. Maybe not even measuring the consequences all the time. If I jump in the water, I'm going to be freezing cold for half the day, and that's going to be miserable. Boosh, he's in the water. Or maybe you can relate to the other Talmudim who stayed in the boat. You would, you, you could, they probably would call themselves the responsible ones. They looked at this Shimon and they're like, he just jumped in the water. He's fed, heading for the shore. I mean, yeah, it's Yeshua, but Yeshua just gave us a big catch of fish. Like Yeshua gave us these fish. And we can't just all jump in the water. What if we all did what Shimon is doing? What if, what if we all jumped in the water and swang for the shore? The boat would float away, all the fish would escape. And what a waste that would be. I mean, somebody around here has to think practically. Maybe they were a little frustrated with the impulsive one. Huh? Yeah. So, you know, if you're that kind of person, you'll probably call yourself responsible or uh, maybe, uh, what would you call yourself? Um, Like, reasonable or that kind of thing. Practical. If you're not that kind of person, I don't know. What, what, What would people who aren't that kind of person call those kinds of people? Boring. I don't know. <laughs> Schedule. Anyway, it's, it's fun how you can see different personality types in, in the midst of Yeshua's own disciples. And maybe they even complimented each other. I think they did. How about what this story has to teach us about people? 
What does this story that's about normal human beings like you and I have to tell us about normal human beings like you and I, like our neighbors, like the people in the city, uh, like the people in Yeshua's time? Uh, One thing it tells us quite simply is that we, as human beings, have a very challenging time connecting the dots. Like really, we're just, we're pretty thick-skulled as homo sapiens. So even though we're like, we have brains that are a lot smarter than most animals, really, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to process all the data that's constantly pouring like a deluge into yourself and to sort through it and to kind of get the big picture, to get some understanding and then infer from that what to do today, what to do in the next week or month. That's a real challenge and that's something that we see in this story. I mean, these guys, Yeshua had told them all this stuff, he gave them the mission. You'd think it would have been clear, but you know, when it's time to implement the plan, big flop. And that's, that's us as human beings, right? Like, we like to pat ourselves on the back. We like to award ourselves high IQ and tests. But quite frankly, like, I think we're all a little dumb deep down inside. And that's, that's you know what? That's okay. Quite frankly, it's very freeing to just acknowledge that. You know what? I'm a pretty stupid person and I really need God's help today. I really hope that God gives me those flashes of insight that I need because without him, I am just going to bungle my whole day. That's something that this story would maybe suggest to us. Something else that this story tells us about people and about us is that we are real, uh, we are real um, creatures of habit. You could say we're routine animals. Did you notice that These disciples, they always fished the same way. They always employed the same techniques. The net was always thrown on the other side of the boat. Um, uh, Newton's laws of motion actually talk about that. Uh, Isaac Newton, kind of, um, he, 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 he posed this law that an object at rest will tend to stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force. And an object in motion will stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. So if you have, let's say, a piece of debris hurtling through outer space, it's going to keep going and going and going in a straight line, doing exactly the straight, same thing, unless it's acted upon by an outside force. Unless it uh, is struck by another rock and knocked into another, uh, another uh, angle. Uh, those kinds of ideas. And uh, you and I are just like those pieces of space debris. We're just, we're just hurtling through life and we have all of these influences coming at us and everything wants to shoot us in a certain direction, send us to a certain place, get us talking a certain way, thinking a certain way, spending our money a certain way, allocating our time a certain way. We as objects are acted upon by outside forces for good or bad, and that determines what we end up doing with our lives. It's almost like it's not even so much us, what we do with our lives, it's which influences do we allow to send us in a certain direction. What do they do with their lives? You could, all, you could, fra- you could frame that in the concept of voices too. There are voices speaking to every human being on the planet from so many different angles, clashing voices, radically different voices. Uh, Voices from family members. Voices from the TV. Voices from, let's say, friends at school. Voices from a book. Voices from the Bible. There's so many different voices, hey? And uh, something this story tells us is, we're just going to keep doing the same stuff unless something intersects us. Something else this story tells us about people, and this is really simple, is that we really like to eat together. 
Did you notice that as human beings? And I mean, that's almost so simple that we don't even think about it. It's so simple that we kind of take it for granted. So like, for instance, it's really easy to sit down for supper with the family and you just kind of take it for granted. You don't really pay attention to each other. You don't really think, wow, we're really making a memory right now. Like, we're, we're eating together. This is, this is cool. You know? But that's something that this story tells us, that we as human beings, we really like to eat together. And Yeshua saw that, as we see in the story, and he actually uh, kind of created a moment around that, didn't he? We definitely, we definitely see that. It's like eating, to, eating and drinking together is something of a social ritual with us as human beings. Um, maybe for them at that point, it was doing, doing a, a fish grill barbecue breakfast. Maybe for us in our culture, it's uh, grabbing a coffee or uh, maybe grabbing some wings after training or uh, bringing some cookies over to your neighbor having a glass of iced tea together, those kinds of things. You can definitely see that eating and drinking together are social rituals for human beings. Something we love doing. And I can't underscore how important that is if you're wanting to build friendships with people, build bridges with people who aren't like you, and maybe even just see community grow in your neighborhood or in your faith community. Then the last big question I want us to ask about this story is, what does this story tell us about the hero of this story. You could say he's the star uh, Yeshua, the man who was executed, who breathed his last, except that it wasn't his last because he, he you could say he resuscitated. He came back from the dead three years later, uh, three days later. <laughs> Here are a couple. And, and this, this is like, I, I, I love this story because quite frankly, I think this is one of the most personal glimpses of Yeshua that we have in all of the scriptures. Like you get a really good look at him starting to rain a bit. Are you guys going to be okay? Okay, I'm going to be okay. If you guys want, feel free to run and grab a blanket or something, but we might as well finish this talk, hey? But I, I really love this story about Yeshua because it's so personal. Like, it is, such, it is such a snapshot of his face. If you can just imagine with me, what, what did he look like when he was standing on the beach and shouting to these guys who had just been fishing all night and they don't have a clue who he is? Did you catch anything? What do, you th- do you think he was like, oh, these idiots, what are they doing? I mean, really, do you think he was like, I can't believe these guys? Or, I, I don't know, quite frankly, when I, when I picture Yeshua, I see him shouting to them with a smile on his face. I, I, I see a place, playfulness to the Master in this story that sometimes shines through a little bit in the Gospels, but that really seems to shine through here. I mean, why? Why did he, why did he call to them when they were still fishing. Why did he make sure that they caught a big load of fish? Seems like that was probably their final fishing experience in their whole lives before they went on to go catch people for the master, hey? <laughs> I mean, why didn't he just kind of have a little, um, little uh, huddle time with them and say, okay guys, here's the deal, here are the instructions, let's get, let's get going with these things. Why, why did he take the time to make breakfast? Really, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to cook breakfast. You can just have your meeting. You can just get through the agenda, you can deliver the information that has to be delivered and then disappear because, I mean, hey, you have a universe to administer here. Hey? But no, he like, he, he makes a charcoal fire. He, he creates this, this experience. He, he makes breakfast for the guys. Like, that's more like, like I mentioned, that's more like something a Jewish mama would do. Or my baba, for that matter. My baba, like, I think one of the worst things that could ever happen from her vantage point would be for us to visit her and for us to go home hungry. Like, she, she is very, she's very 
um, she's very concerned about that. So she always makes sure that she laid, loads us down with lots of food. She asks us several times, did you have enough to eat? Have just one more thing. We have some ice cream in the fri- freezer, and there are, there's fruit juice in the fridge, and etc., etc., right? And you kind of see the side to Yeshua where, like, he doesn't want his guys to go hungry. He makes breakfast for them just to make sure that they're, they're not hungry. That's very considerate, too, because they just worked all night long, eh? Pulled an all-nighter. They probably were hungry. So that, those are some things that we see from the story about Yeshua, like right off the bat, how patient he is with his disciples, that he's smiling. When some people would have been so frustrated, they would have been freaking out, they would have been like blowing the whistle and being like, guys, you get to the shore right now. We have to have a conversation. Like, have you forgotten everything I taught you? Right? And, you know, that, like, that means a lot to me. And I think that could probably mean a lot to us sometimes because when you look at human beings in general and when you look at God's people, whether they be the Jewish people in general, whether they be Christians who, who, who believe the Bible and go to church, whether it be Messianic Jews, whether it be people in the Hebrew Roots Movement, those kinds of fellowships, if you look at God's people in general, you will be tempted to be depressed. Because we're a mess. Because we're not really accomplishing the mission. Because there's so much more that maybe could happen. You know, you, uh, you read about the early Yeshua movement, and then you look at us as a Yeshua movement today, and it's kind of hard not to notice the, uh, the difference. We're just not raising a lot of people from the dead. We're not, we don't see a ton of healings in our midst. Um, all, all kinds of things like that. You don't see uh, showdowns between guys like Saul and Elemis where Elemis gets struck blind like a government official. We don't see as many things like that. And uh, you even, let's say, let's say you were to look at the body of Messiah here in Prince Albert. You know, we all have friends who are believers and who are broken. Maybe who used to be walking with God and now they're not. Maybe people who know the stuff in their heads, but when you look at their lives, it doesn't seem like they get it. You even look at our community. Our community has problems, right? Because we're a bunch of human beings. And our first tendency would be to look at the people of God and to be like, oh, oh, like facepalm. Right? Like, this is a mess. Like, I'm just going to go to bed and curl up in the fetal depre- position and be depressed for the rest of the day. Uh, maybe go and read the Book of Lamentations a couple of times and groan. Like, really. If you, were to, if you were a practical-minded person, if you were a really realistic kind of person, if you're the kind of person who looks at people and situations um, in black and white terms, that would be your response. But did you notice that wasn't Yeshua's response? Here's his guy's they're out, well, they're not out to lunch. It's more like they're almost out to breakfast. And Yeshua's smiling. Yeshua's feeding them. Yeshua's like having them over for breakfast and talking with them on a personal level. Man, I, that means a lot to me. Just that when Yeshua looks at his people, he smiles. When Yeshua looks at his people, he, sees, he, he looks at us through eyes of hope. He's totally optimistic. Yeah. So... I don't know, for me, that's a kick. Like, I, I need to tell myself that some days too because I can get depressed. I can look at, like the, let's say, like the Yeshua movement in general, whether you're talking about like the church crowd or whether you're talking about Hebrew roots kind of people or whether you're talking about more official Messianic Jewish synagogues. And I can get depressed sometimes, right? Because there's, there's just, there's a long ways to go. We're on the journey and we're not there yet. I just, I, 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 I tell my, I need to, rem- I need to remember that. 
So that's a personal thing from the story that I feel Yeshua is showing me of himself and maybe that's meaningful to you too. Did you notice what Yeshua called his guys? First words off his lips when he was shouting to them a hundred yards off from the boat. If, if, if most English scriptures will say children. Children. That's a, like a translation of from the Greek, of course, which is like pulled from an earlier Hebrew or Aramaic actual quote that Yeshua said, eh? What do you think Yeshua said in Hebrew or maybe Aramaic, whatever it is that he spoke? What does, what does a rabbi call his disciples in Hebrew? That's right. In Hebrew, a rabbi calls his Talmudim his sons. My Ben, my Ben, my son, my son. The Hebrew is Benai. Everybody say Benai. Yeah. So in Hebrew, Yeshua is probably saying, Benai, my sons. And that is very meaningful. That Yeshua invites every human being on the planet, the people in our city, to enter into a relationship with him where he says, you're my son. In a way that you have never felt like a true son, you are my true son. You're my daughter. In a way that you always long to be your father's daughter, you are my daughter. For a, for a generation like my generation that is growing up with ever-increasing numbers of single-parent homes, that's, that's very attractive. That's good news. The Yeshua is alive from the dead that he's available to every one of us if we want to go there with him, and that we can look at Yeshua and say, you're my real dad. You are my true father. And that's not to eclipse the fatherhood of God. Of course, we call God our father. Yeshua taught us to call God our father in heaven. Uh, Shaul wrote that his spirit in us calls him Abba. But at the same time, Yeshua, as our spiritual teacher, as our rabbi, it's entirely appropriate to call Yeshua my father. It's okay to call Yeshua your dad because Yeshua is your dad. He's your real dad. He's your true father. And you're his true daughter. You're his true son if you've entered into that relationship with him where you're his disciple. So that's something that this story tells us about Yeshua and the good news that this story uh, has to offer for, for the world and for the people in our neighborhoods. Something else we see in the story about Yeshua is that he's a totally out-of-the-box thinker who looks at things from other angles that none of us would think to look at. And I mean, this is just a small example in the story, but for some reason it never crossed these guys' minds to just throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Yeshua comes along and he says, why don't you do things a different way? Why don't you try something that as professional fishermen you've never thought of? Yeshua wasn't a pro fisherman. Who is he to be telling these guys how to do it? And was it really the technique that made the difference? Probably not. But you still see this in the story, eh? What, 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 would this, what, would, what would this mean to us as individuals? Let's say in terms of how we do life, how we do relationships, how, how we do uh, business, finances. What does it look like to get our direction straight from Yeshua? To get cutting-edge ideas, like new strategies from Him. What does it look like to think out of the box with the Master? I guarantee you that He has counsel for you that you would have never imagined. He has advice for you that's so sizzling out of the box, you'd be like, wow, that could only come from him because I am just not that smart. I'm not that creative. I'm not that crazy. That's Yeshua for you. What does that look like for us as communities of his disciples? You know, we have a mission to engage this city with Yeshua's story. We have a mission to share his word, to, uh, to influence people to become disciples for him. What does it look like to try something new? To throw our nets 
what we use to catch people, to engage them on the other side of the boat. This is something that has sometimes really perturbed me about how we do things in the body of Christ in general. Did you notice that almost every single church in the city meets at the same time of the week? Sunday morning, 10 o'clock or maybe 10.30 or 11 if your people like to sleep in a little bit. Did you notice that? Like, haven't you ever wondered, like, what if Sunday morning doesn't work for some people? Why don't any churches get together some other time of the week? Like, why doesn't this church get together Friday evening for people who can make it Friday evening? Or maybe to reach the Friday evening crowd. Why doesn't this church get together Saturday afternoon for, to reach the Saturday afternoon crowd or Saturday night? What about Saturday night at 2 o'clock? Why doesn't a church have their um, shindigs at 2 o'clock Saturday night to reach the crowd that's just getting out of the bars? Wouldn't that be interesting? You know, just, just thinking out of the box here, why do all of us throw our nets in the exact same place? There is a huge ocean out there of fish and we're all throwing our nets in the exact same little square 10 feet. You know what I'm saying? And even here in PA, we're totally doing that. Like, most churches are geared to reach a certain type of person. Your, like, your middle class family, in, family is like what most churches are geared to reach. So, you know, generally churches will advertise as like, we're family friendly, we're a family church, we're family oriented. And that's good, I'm totally pro-family, right? But what about all the single people that aren't as likely to go to church? Why don't you shoot for them? Or what are you doing to shoot for them? What about males between the ages of 18 and 35? The people who are least likely to go to church. What are, what are most of us in the city doing to reach those guys, to engage those guys? Quite frankly, most of us are doing nothing. We're not throwing our nets in this huge part of the lake. So this, this, is, um, this is like one of these big themes that this, this story really springboards into, hey? And that's why we, as a community, are doing things totally different and why we have been for the last couple of months because Yeshua has spoken to me very clearly that we are to start gatherings in home, gathering in homes on Friday nights. That he, wants, he is inviting us, our King is inviting us to get together with Him here in the park on Saturday afternoons. Great! Let's try it. Let's throw our nets over there. Let's throw our nets over there. It isn't even so much about where you throw your nets. It's about what is Yeshua saying to do. So we're doing what he's called us to do. And you know what? The rest is up to him. All we can do is throw the nets and listen to his instructions. Hey, everything else is up to him. And I love that because it's very freeing. But, but can you see that? How like gathering in homes on Friday nights, we are throwing our nets into our neighborhoods in a way that gathering at a centralized location will never enable us to do. Getting together Friday night instead of Saturday morning or Sunday morning is throwing our nets into a time zone that nobody else is reaching into. Getting together here at Kinsman Park is throwing our nets into part of the lake that just nobody's going. Nobody's going here, right? And I mean, there's so, other, there's so many other things that we could think about with those regards, right? But hopefully that'll just raise some questions in our minds and give us that perspective so that in the upcoming couple of weeks and months, we can just be really attuned to the Master's voice and we can be on track with each other to say, where is Yeshua saying to throw the nets? Because it's probably going to be different. It may be a little crazy and it may not be what we've ever done before, what other people have done. That's Him. Keeps things fresh anyway, hey? Uh, something else we see about Yeshua in this story is he hides. 
Like, you can't even tell it's him sometimes. There could be a guy walking through this park, and he just catches your eye and smiles at you for the briefest instant, and you never see him again, and that could literally be Yeshua himself. Like, he could come from the heavens, and he could materialize and just kind of show up in the park and just wink at you, and you'd never know it's him. Because he's dressed like one of us. Because he looks like a white Caucasian sometimes. Look, he looks like maybe an African-American or he looks like he's Cree. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you hear what I'm saying here? There's something really puzzling about that. After Yeshua was raised from the dead, you couldn't tell who he was. You couldn't recognize him just from his face. He wasn't all shiny like he had just been a little too close to a nuclear reactor when it melted down. He didn't have any like halos around his head. Um, he didn't have like really gorgeous Pantene Pro-V hair that he'd clearly spent half an hour brushing that morning. Or any of the... He didn't have like pristine white garments with the blue sash or the yellow sash or whatever. Like, he was just a guy on the seashore asking them if they caught any fish. And it was him. So just, you know, as we go through life, I hope that just like raises um, our radar... Are you sure radar sensitivity levels? To just be like... He's somewhere around here. I know he is. I'll bet I could see him if I just looked around. Maybe that's him. And I mean, we're not going to start like walking up to be people and being like, are you? Are you Jesus? <laughs> it's Jesus! And giving people hugs, right? But like, but on the other hand, why not err on that side? Why not err on the side of always looking for Yeshua and other people? And just listening for His voice. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really, I, I really love that about Yeshua. Not just that, like, he is sometimes unrecognizable at first glance based on physical criteria, but that he's mysterious. Did you notice that? Like, Yeshua has a real air of mystique to him. And I mean, like, okay, some ladies, they really love mysterious men, okay? If you're the kind of lady who loves a mysterious man, Yeshua's like your ultimate guy. He's really mysterious. Like, he just, he knows stuff, and he doesn't let, let, let it on, like, let on at all that he knows stuff. The way he does things will just, like, be like, what is he doing? Where is he going with this? Um, it's just the way he will look at you sometimes will be like, Yeshua is a mysterious person. He, he shows up on the shore of the lake and he doesn't say, Hey guys, it's me. It's the Son of God. Ta-da! You can all fall on your faces now. You know, he's playful. He, he cooks breakfast for his guys. Like, it's just mysterious. So I hope we, I hope, I hope we can grow in our wonder just at who God is in general and about who Yeshua is. I hope we can grow just like in that wide-eyed wonder and that love for Him. That He's a person. Uh, something else that this story tells us about Yeshua is that even after He was raised from the dead, as the Son of God, He was still very human. He was still a human being with skin on, like us. Did you notice that? Like, Thomas could poke his finger right in his, the holes, the nail holes in his hands. He could touch him. He could like take a chunk of fish, put it in his mouth, chew it up, just like he did for all those decades before when he was a little boy and growing up, and swallow it into his stomach. Yeshua could do that after he was raised from the dead. Because he wasn't just spiritually raised from the dead, he was physically raised from the dead. His body came out of that tomb, and his body never rotted, it never decomposed. It like became immortal, but he still had a body. And Yeshua still has a body. 
He's 100% physical. And I don't understand why that's so important, but it is extremely important. Uh, John, who, wrote, who told this story, later had to deal with a bunch of false teachers in the early Yeshua movement, and they were really obsessed with this lie that Yeshua didn't have a body, that he was, eth- that he was ethereal, that he was a spirit, that you couldn't really touch him, that he just made it look like the fish disappeared, like a magic trick, but he never really ate the fish because he couldn't have a body. Those, uh, those guys were often called Gnostics. They basically taught that this world is cruddy. It's just disgusting. It's gross. Physical matter is evil. And your body? Your body is disgusting. It's gross. It's evil. And basically, you just want to try and get out of your body as much as you can. Just ignore the physical dimensions as much as possible. And eventually, one day, we'll die and we'll get out of here. And we can be spiritual like we want to be. And then everything will be okay. Uh, Those are the Gnostics for you, okay? Those are the kinds of things that they taught. And what this story tells us is your body is good. The physical universe that God made, do you remember at the very beginning, what did he say about it, good or bad? It's so good. Fish is really good. Barbecued fish, so tasty. Toast, oh, toast is good. That's one of the very spiritual things that we get from this story. Fish is tasty and toast is good. Oh, really? Because sometimes we can get in this spiritual mindset where we kind of quit reveling in life every day. We quit savoring the toast that we have in the morning. And Yeshua wants to, to savor that toast, every bite. I like toast, so I could say that, right? Mm. I can just about taste it right now. But like, really, like people who just love life, who savor the moment, because I don't know if you've noticed that, but we live in a world of people that are like consumers and they're constantly consuming more taking more in I need to eat one more hamburger I need to have one more cup of coffee it's only been my eighth today and they're constantly gobbling and taking in and consuming and trying to satisfy something in themselves but you're still hungry you're still thirsty you're still not satisfied and when we encounter Yeshua He fills our hearts with His love and He gives us real life and we experience this inner shalom we can actually stop and we can enjoy a piece of toast more than most people would enjoy like the most expensive caviar you could pay for. That kind of concept, eh? So that whole, that whole, that whole question of like, do wealthy people enjoy life more because they have more expensive food or because it's arranged a little bit more pretty? No. No. The good news is it's Yeshua that makes the difference. So we totally, uh, we totally see that in this story, that Yeshua is very human. He ate food, and he likes that we eat food. And he liked eating with his disciples. You think about this, did Yeshua do anything he really didn't want to do after he was raised from the dead? I don't think so. I think he did what he wanted to do after he was raised from the dead. Because his will and his Father's will were just like that, eh? Just like that. So why did Yeshua cook a breakfast for his Talmudim? because well, he didn't want them to be hungry. He cared about them. He's a pretty thoughtful guy. Maybe a couple of them were hypoglycemic and he was like, man, if I have this conversation with Shimon, he's just not going to get it. He's not going to be in a very good mood, right? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that was it. But maybe he just liked having breakfast with his disciples. Maybe that's why we like to eat together when we get together, eh? Did you notice that? Every Friday night when we get together as a community, we do potluck. We like to eat together. Maybe we get that from Yeshua. Maybe Yeshua likes to eat with you. That's something we see in this story. And then the last thing we see in this story, this is going to be true for some people more than other people. Like, what, what, what do you like? Uh, some people, they really like to make memories. 
I think maybe moms are especially good at that, or maybe it was just my mom, I don't know. But my mom was really good at making memories. You know, so when it was a birthday for, for me or my brothers growing up, like she, she made the coolest cakes ever. She would make these big train cakes or whatever kind of cake we wanted. We'd have like a ton, ton of our friends over. Maybe we'd go to my grandparents' farm or something, and we'd make a memory. It wasn't like a birthday was just a little event where it was like, yeah, I don't know, just one more day. You know, I was born. It's a good thing that happened. It's a day where, I don't know, you kind of feel special. And that's just a little example from, from my boyhood years. But what, what are you like? Uh, some people are more like that. They're the kind of people who are like, if you're going to have a special conversation with a loved one, you would never just have it sitting in your vehicle or uh, sitting at the mall. It would be like, you'd want, if you're going to have a special conversation, you want to kind of create a, you want to make a memory of it. You want to create a special context. And you'll be like, you know what, let's go and watch the sunrise and uh, take our, a thermos of tea. And then we'll have our special conversation in this context where we'll always remember the conversation just to kind of make it really special, to, uh, to perfect it, you could say. And uh, some people are like that. I, I don't know, Genevieve, you, you, I'm probably kind of like that, hey? Like when you're recording, you know, if we were going to go on a date, I'd always like want to kind of, um, kind of make it really special and make it in a memorable location and do stuff that would stick in our minds, making memories. And uh, did you notice about Yeshua? who is dating us, who has proposed already and betrothed us to himself through his shed blood, who's coming back for us for the wedding, he does that. That's the kind of person he is. I mean, really, I don't know. He could have just, like, showed up, I don't know, maybe just at home when they're all sitting in the living room or something. But instead, he, like, he, tells, he, makes, he makes an event of it. He tells a story. He's like, let's make a real story out of this. And so, you know, when they're out there in the water... He makes sure they get a big load of fish. He has them over for breakfast. He goes for a walk with Simone after, by, on the beach, where he tells him how he's going to die a couple decades later. That's, it's like if you're going to tell one of your closest friends how they're going to die, how they're going to have a brutal death where they probably are screaming in agony until they go hoarse, that's really meaningful that Yeshua was like, he, he created a memory of that. There was a special time to have that special conversation with the special disciple. And uh, that's how Yeshua relates to you. That's how Yeshua relates to me. So sometimes it's so easy for us to kind of get locked into our routines. We just kind of start doing life the way we do life, eh? And uh, we just kind of get, like, kind of caught up in stuff. And it's just special that sometimes Yeshua will say to us, I want you to come to this special place and I want to make a memory with you. I want you to block this time out of your schedule and it's just going to be time with you and me. So they always remember it. So it'll be meaningful to your heart. Um, I want you to, I don't know, do this activity that you've never done or go to this place that you would never have thought about if it wasn't me inviting you. Those kinds of things. So um, that's, the, that's the last thing that I see from, about Yeshua in this story that I really love. And it's something meaningful because it's not just how he related to his disciples a couple thousand years ago. It's how he relates to us as his disciples today. So the last question I guess we could ask from the story is, is there anyone that you could tell the story to in the upcoming week about Yeshua after he was raised from the dead, about how he, his disciples didn't recognize him, he asked them if they caught any fish, he helped them to bring a huge load in when they tried a different technique, and now he made breakfast for them. And they had breakfast together. Oh, maybe there's someone who has uh, never heard that story about Yeshua before. It is kind of an unusual story. It's not the one that people usually hear. So I don't know, maybe there's someone that we can share these stories, this story with in this upcoming week and who knows what kind of conversation might 
come out of that experience. So yeah, I, I want to pray together to finish here. Uh, thank you, Yeshua, that we have access to your word. Thank you for telling us this story about yourself and your Talmudim. It wasn't even written in Matthew or Mark or Luke, only in John. If it wasn't for John, we wouldn't even know this about you. Thank you for that. Thank you for how you are involved in our lives, how you show up, how you you ask us questions and you engage us in conversation and sometimes we don't even know it's you. We don't even recognize you. Just thank you for thank you for that. Thank you for opening our eyes to see you for who you are. Thank you for giving us a recognition of your closeness. Thank you for leading us, Yeshua. Thank you for speaking to us and giving us advice on a on a personal individual level and also as a community. Thank you for giving us fresh approaches, for cutting-edge strategies, ideas that are sort of the box so that we can engage the city with your story so that people can see you who would never otherwise see you, so that we can hopefully catch people for you, Yeshua, and see them drawn into discipleship to you. That's our dream for the city. That's our dream for our neighborhoods. Please, Yeshua, continue to speak to us. Continue to give us your strategies. Reach out through us. Give us unity as a community, I pray, as you reach out through us to the city and engage people with your story. I pray that we could um, have our relationship with you new every day, our contact with you, that it would be fresh, that we could meet you on a level we've never met you before, that you would renew our romance with you, that we could fall in love with you all over again, our rabbi. Thank you too that we can know you as our dad, that we can call you dad, that we can have a relationship with you where you teach us all this stuff that maybe our dad's never taught us. Thank you for that. And I look around the city and I see a generation of people who don't have dads, who don't have moms, who are who are never parented properly, or maybe who have health, unhealthy relationships with their kids as a result also. I pray, Yeshua, that you would come to Prince Albert and that you would father this city, that you would be a dad to the people in the city who need a dad. Please do that. Please draw them into a relationship with you where they can call you Dad, Abba. Where they can actually follow you as disciples and learn from you and see how you do life. We ask you for these things and we thank you for them, Yeshua. Thank you, Father, in the name of your beloved Son. Amen. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.